3: Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are continuing to record this podcast remotely for the safety of our guests and our team. So, on with the show. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks well-known friends three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And this week, my teenage self is beside herself because I'm joined by two women who throughout the 80s and 90s paved the way for women in music, doing their thing, their way, ripping up the rulebook as they went and igniting the charts the world over. They're the 80s girl band who became the biggest selling girl band of all time, bigger than even the Supremes. I'm talking 40 million plus record sales, US number ones, and sellout tours that, until COVID reared its ugly head, continue to this day. Growing up in Bristol, they became best friends at the age of four and have pretty much been by each other's side ever since, over 50 years on as they inch their way towards their 60th birthdays. Their friendships seen them through their school years, through adolescence, global fame, band breakups, motherhood, comebacks, and even more comebacks, all of which is beautifully captured in their forthcoming memoir, Really Saying Something, which I devoured. They were the punk-fused pop stars, snarly, can't-be-asked, half-pissed, and as cool as you like. They sang, they danced, and they did everything to the beat of their own drum, refusing to do as they were told, usually by men. And for almost four decades, have pretty much remained on pop's front line. I cannot wait to spend the next hour in their company. So let's dial up Karen Woodward and Sarah Darling from Banana Rama. <laughs> I've spent i spent all weekend reading your book, but oh my god, what a what a nostalgia fest!
4: Miners' makeup. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, you're probably a bit younger than us, so but did you have the white uh, nail varnish because that was so the rage?
3: <laughs> yes, and then when I couldn't afford it, I used to have to resort to tipex.
4: Oh God, <laughs> yeah, like Karen shoplifting. shoplifting.
3: <laughs> did you shoplift? All oh, my friends shoplifted, and I didn't have the hutzpah. <laughs>
4: It's the only time I got caught was stealing the white, white nail varnish.
3: You have remembered so much in this book. And I, I have, I, first of all, I'll take my hat off to you because I can't remember like last week, let alone, you know, uh-huh. when you met up when you met at the age of four. But going back and, re, and writing this book, how's it been for you? Because it's, it's, it's the first time you've ever done it in this level of detail, isn't it?
4: Yes, but uh, to be honest, considering it's 50-odd years, that's quite a small amount <laughs> of detail, really, and it's what to leave in and what to take out. Um, yeah. We were just going to do the rama story, and then the childhood, we started with a bit of childhood writing, and then couldn't stop, and it was just all about like little things, about us wading upstream, with uh, our trousers rolled up when we were about 10. And, and I mean, the day <laughs> we took to the park, coming home yeah, from school, God. get on your bike, go to the park, hang out. I mean, <laughs> that park was every was day, everything. But every for, day. But for <laughs> years, that's what we did after school. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's,
3: that's all anyone did. You got in from school, yeah. changed, got your roller boots on or your bike, got your chopper, yeah. off you went. Yeah.
4: Oh, no, we didn't have a chopper. No, it was too expensive. I, <laughs> a <chopper. laughs> I had a molten money. Oh, so did I. <laughs> Uh, I love the detail in which you write
3: about how skint you were, despite, certainly in your early early days of Bananarama, you're selling millions of records, but you're signing on. You're absolutely brassic. You're living in, you know, rehearsal studios that are, are free of charge and you're showering. Where would, where would you go for showers? You
4: know, swimming baths which is still the there. Way, it's really funny, though, because they had, like, little stalls where you open the door and there's a bath in there and Karen said somebody ran they the did. bath for you. And you paid 50p and you had a bath. I mean, that's almost Victorian. It's like, well, <laughs> well it was. It was yeah. like a bathhouse in the really a swimming baths. I don't know if they still do I them, don't. They have that there But now. that was just at the end of Denmark Street where we were living. So that was what we, the rest of the time, it was a boiled kettle and a bowl. Splash <laughs> <laughs> <Just laughs> <thrashed> the <face. laughs>
3: I mean, like when you say you're living in Denmark Street, that's like, you know, prime location now. That's multi-million pound addresses.
4: (laughs) I know. Uh, (laughs) It was literally squalid. Yeah. (laughs) It really was. It was a horrible outside toilet that was filthy. And I imagine the Sex Pistols had used 10 years before or five years before us. It Um, was their rehearsal studio, wasn't it? Still belonged to those. They still rehearsed there with their new band. So, um, yeah, we just lived in what used to be the office above it. And so it had an old table, and just had nothing in there at all. No. Cold water, no hot water. Yeah. Rubbishy toilet outside, and in leaky, the yard. leaks in the roof. Yeah, between the beans. So we had a sort of carrier bags catching the leak, catching all the water. And, and Karen and I just took the uh, mattresses from the Y Y N Y W C A where we were living before that, while we were at college, while I was at college. Um, yeah, we just dragged the the um, mattresses down there and th- flung them on the floor and that was it. I, I think we were only there for six months. But we yeah, were we? so happy there. Yes. I mean, were you? <laughs> well, it was such an adventure. I-, I sort of think Soho. I mean, you're in the yeah. heart of Soho. And um, back then, that was where everything yeah. happened. Yeah, it was. I think it, you know, it's, it was just a place of huge excitement for us, the fact that we could walk out and just be in the middle of everything. I don't know what it's like now in Soho with clubs and things, but back then there were clubs everywhere. And even if it was like for one night somewhere, everybody knew where to go. And so we literally went to millions of clubs and could just walk home. Stagger home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stagger home. With a hot dog. <laughs> and then the two of you used to plug in the electric guitars and just like smash. Yeah, yeah have a great time. Yeah. And there are no neighbours and so no one complaining. It was really such a and fun we had one time. fan heater, yeah, Fanny, Fanny, who came with me from home. And my brother, my my brother, my son ended up taking to university Did you? and she still goes. <laughs> Fanny, no. She's yeah, she still goes. <laughs> Where is she? That's amazing. In Cornwall now, is she? Yeah. Still in working order. <laughs> Good old Fanny. <laughs>
3: it's yeah. so all that detail you've you've not you've not forgotten any of it and that's remarkable with when you consider how much you've been through together I mean like for years you've been on and off planes touring the world life has never really you've not like you've ever had those kind of 10 years of sitting at home getting fat well
4: <laughs> 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 well have you not right. 10 years Yes. It was easier remembering all the childhood and the fun stuff and the club stuff we used to do. Yeah. But the Banana Rama stuff, because it's like our fourth decade, that tended to blur into one. It's like, what? When did we? When do did that? we yeah. yeah. Where was we that? There? We, yeah. Yeah. And then it's like you can't say, "Well, I went to America, then I toured Australia, and then say, I and mean, then we did that the next year and the next year." So it's like that became. Right you know, that's what you do because that's your job. So really I found the most enjoyable stuff to write about was obviously relationships with various people we had. We knew uh, George, Michael or Keith, Flint. Mm-hmm. But it was the childhood and the teenage and the excitement of leaving home and being in this hostel and then moving into the pistols thing. Yeah. Was, it was, was quite c- emotional, wasn't yeah. it? There were moments where we got quite emotional. And Did especially you? I'm not surprised. Because of growing up sort of in each other's houses with each other's, our families the um, first Vesta curry we made we didn't put that <laughs> oh we didn't put a Vesta curry in did we? we thought we were really in <laughs> <laughs> that but, water and stir <laughs> yeah and
3: but where we grew I mean you because you grew um, up in Bristol and I'm from down 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 the road in in Cheltenham but like, I remember not having Chinese food until we were 16 and and like a Vesta curry would have been was it in a can?
4: If was, it was in a can, we might have had it. It was in a, in a box. box. It was in a packet. You throw the top off, put it in a bowl and put boiling water. <laughs> and they also did chow mein as well. Yeah. yeah.
3: I'm not sure which it's is that. So, yeah.
4: See, Our kids don't know what we went
3: through. <laughs> what our, you know, our, our taste buds were so simple. It was either a Finder's crispy pancake or a Vesta curry. <laughs> That's as exotic well, as it could. For called.
4: our first few years in London, we had no cooking facilities no. at all, apart from a kettle. So used to boil eggs in the kettle, smash, and bake beans, keep the beans in in the tin in in the the kettle. kettle. No. No. And then (laughs) open it. We both weighed (laughs) weighed about seven (laughs) percent and thought we were (laughs) fat.
3: Oh, you did everything your way or the highway, and I loved that. In fact, I think when French and Staunders tried to spoof you, it was almost impossible to spoof because that's who you were. So that kind of falling out of taxis, couldn't give a shit, I'm not doing that.
4: It was, um, it was a slight exaggeration, <laughs> but I mean, we, we know we, still- we saw We dog quite recently and I just sort of, at the time I sort of said, where did you get it from? And they actually got it from an interview yeah. from, from someone who had traveled around with us while we were working. It's like, well, I'm not going out there, I'd have to come in here, you know, it's like, we're starting- <laughs> When you're on that whole thing. I was like, Oh, just one more thing. Yeah. Oh, one more thing. <laughs> That's what you said last time. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, not much has changed. <laughs> <laughs> we just tell someone else to say not yeah. one more thing.
3: But you know, it's like you wrote the handbook for other female <laughs> bands that came after you. I remember, you know, Nick and Nat sort of going, you know, when somebody was pushing them into doing something they didn't want to do in All Saints, it's like ah, oh, fuck it, banana arm wouldn't do it. And it was great. It's like you paved the way. They really are. Yeah, they really
4: are. They
3: got all the same sort of um, bad press, I suppose, in as much as, like, because they wouldn't do
4: what men ask them to do. They're like, oh, they're a bit difficult. It's like, no, they're just a bit yeah. intelligent. highly difficult is so irritating. It just means that people can't take advantage of you. That's what it really yeah. means. And yeah. They don't like it because no, of course it, I don't they're, like they're, you. you have an opinion or be, want to be in control of your career to some extent, why why wouldn't you? you know, Especially when not. you girls were doing it, because it was like, and you, mere
3: women, I speaking know. up, how yeah.
4: dare you? Mm. to wear what you want and sort of look how you want, as opposed to, you know, some record exec's idea of what might sell a record. But that, you know, to, I'm to, to sure that they, they did just I'm, let us go on with it when yeah. it was working. I'm I sure think, it's much worse now. Yeah. I mean, we were a kind of organic band. We put ourselves together and tried writing our own material and ended up writing some great pop songs. Um, I don't know, not just girl bands, but any young bands now, how they all, whether they go about it in the same way, to be honest. You were
3: famous for saying no. And I wanted to know, um, what are the things that you're most proud of? of saying absolutely no way to.
4: Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm proud of Well, I am proud of it. Back in the 80s, we were asked to advertise hair curlers for an American company. I think we just had our first cop ten there. And they showed us the storyboard and it was three fluffy girls in short skirts and tiny tops tonging their hair. Giggling. and giggling and I just thought that that's your executive idea. you know that's your idea of what three young girls should be doing and it was just that is so far removed from who we are and we're just like keep, keep your million dollars <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it, um, yeah. was said no, the time I just don't know if, yeah nobody it's, it's, but nobody said nobody everybody knew they couldn't change our minds because also I think we were so desperate to be taken seriously incredible. And I thought, if mm. we start doing hair curlers, it's just going to look so cheap enough and nobody will ever, you know. But again, that's the sort of thing that you shouldn't really have to, th- to think about. Well, you don't. Too, you're allowed the same level product well. placement is everywhere now, yeah. so it really doesn't, you know, everybody does it. And um, that changed sort of when the Spice Girls happened. They, you know, it was, yeah. it was okay to do them. But for us, back 10 years before, it, it was just the worst thing to be done. Having said that, we did do two commercials in Japan. But they were from yeah, but Japan. back then
3: nobody saw them outside of Japan because the internet yeah. didn't exist. Right, so the
4: motorbike with, um, and a camera. And, yeah. So that was yeah, but it was that was cool.
3: But that was the thing, wasn't it? You would go and do. I've done an ad in Japan. Would you like to come to my second home? That paid for it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so true.
4: As independence <laughs> girls, you you know, we you have to think about. Financial side of things as well. Obviously, it's not like you know we were being looked after by anyone. It was all sort of self-made, and you know we we kind of were very independent in that route. So you have to think about money occasionally.
3: Yeah, you do. And you also uh, managed to find um a rare and and, and an unusual thing uh, at the peak of your success: a female manager in this industry, <laughs> Hilary Shaw. Kills.
4: Yes, we had um, a couple of managers prior to Hillary, but um she worked in an office that uh we start we started who was yeah Clive Banks Banks, who ran this company called Multimedia and uh he paid for our first demo so we knew Hillary from there and um after about a year I think she started looking after us first as a PA and um it was kind of like a mother figure really because it was like a woman that would understand you know Mm -hmm. your problems this that and the other and um yeah, and then after a while, she became our manager. We were never particularly good at being told what to do by no. anyone. And, and we had had a few managers who they'd come up with ideas and said, I don't really like that idea. You know, we, we were very much self driven. And um, Hills helped us sort of facilitate as a group of girls. We, we, we managed to sort of pursue our own ideas yeah. together. Here's a
3: couple of things that I know you said no to one is um, the opportunity to work with Malcolm McLaren at a time when you probably really would have benefited from from an association with him. But he had an idea that you would record a song that he was going to write for you called Don't Touch Me Down There, Daddy. Yes.
4: What the hell is that? It's just gross. It really I think is. He was we went to meet him and he was quite domineering. I think he was trying on purpose in some ways to make us feel a bit awkward yeah. or to, to sort of make us feel sh- I stupid. think he went away yeah. he went away and said that we looked like boys or something. Yeah. It was like really weird. I and mean, he shouted to me like I was in the classroom. I remember sort of thinking, God, what am I doing here? And looking out the window and he said, Oi, you with the dark hair or whatever. It's like, how green very rude. Yeah. <laughs> So so yeah, never have I, don't, I don't think it was it a, never, a, it, it was wasn't a worked. serious, uh, we we met um, Bernie Rhodes from The Clash, who was also said, do you want to go, can you go underground for a year and learn your trade? And it's like, no, no. Underground for a year no. at 19? <laughs> no. We're ready to go now.
3: It must have been quite hard, though, to be assertive at a time when people were just not used to being spoken back at or challenged by female artists.
4: But that just came very naturally to us. And like, I think I just, it was sort of post-punk, so, yeah. you know, that there was a sort of attitude in the air. And, yeah. it, and when you're young, it's like you don't care because... We didn't. I didn't grow up thinking I'd be in a band. The fact that we were in a band was kind of by accident because Karen and I lived in that rehearsal room. We met those sorts of people and then made a demo and Terry Hall bought it. It was all kind of accidental. But once we we started it, it became very, very serious for us for us but it was always we didn't care if it ended the next day it wasn't that kind of career planning let's let's see project five years ahead and see (laughs) see where we'll be and I don't think we do that now No, (laughs) but that is kind of the beauty of you that
3: was the magnetism was like to grow up for me seeing women that I could walk to the shops every Wednesday fortnight to so every, every other Wednesday I would go and get my smash hits. I just wanted to see what you had to say. Who are you going to piss off this week? Who are you saying no to? Who what what? Where had you fallen over drunk in Soho this time? And you were unlike anything else that was around me, and it was oh, it was amazing. And nice I styled rags in my hair, loads of hairspray. I mean, to try and get my hair as big as yours was almost, um, I mean, almost combed
4: a bald patch into the back of it. Yeah, but I think it's so vital. Like you say, if if we were kind of an inspiration to you, it's so vital for young girls to have Mm. someone to look up to, someone to say, oh, I can do that. I mean, for me, it was Debbie Harry. And it wasn't that I kind of related to her. because She was from New York and she was, as everyone pointed out, she was in her 30s. It's like as if that was... Well, it was old to me at 14, but I mean, how dare they just say well, she's made it now? But she's quite old, she's in her 30s, and that's yeah. uh, really stands out to me. They kept yeah. putting that out there, and it's like, but she was amazing because she just looked tough and yet feminine and glamorous and mm. great music. Um, she embodied everything you know that I wanted to be, and it was very rarely you saw that in the 70s growing up with on TV, it was all very smooth men from America or rock bands. Yeah. But also she stood up front and they stood behind her.
3: She wasn't yeah. supporting cast. She was the star yeah. of the show. Yeah. The star. yeah. And yeah. and that in itself was just like, that was a breath of fresh air. Even with bands like Fleetwood Mac, you know, there was always that kind of male female balance, you know, that yeah. it was a, a, a partnership between the, the four or five of them. Yeah. Uh, whereas with Blondie, Blondie was Debbie Harry. Yeah. Yeah.
4: And I think, you know, to, to sort of be able to look attractive. And she's she was incredibly stunning. stunning. <laughs> and, you know, wear a mini skirt or wear a mini dress and yet somehow not look like you're doing it to please men or you're doing mm. it because you have to, just doing it because you look bloody hard like it. You know, it's I think her attitude was amazing.
3: Totally. But then so was yours. You know, I remember buying a donkey jacket and some DMs because <laughs> you <she> had them. <laughs> A donkey jacket. and I remember my dad, I was coming home my dad went, bloody hell. I mean, it's what they empty the sodding bins in. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so comfortable. And the DMs were so comfortable.
4: I was like, I'm really on board with this I mean, lot. They're we, really comfy. We find it strange that we became successful wearing that get-up. I mean, really, that's not, you know. I mean, I've actually met people, i like, and met males who said, Oh, God, I I loved you a lot. I really fancied you. I had your picture on my wall, and and I was thinking, I just look like a boy. (laughs) I had dungarees or, you know, it's... I think it... But I said in the book, I'm quite proud that we became successful pop stars, sort of wearing bloke's clothes in some ways and not conforming to some sort of stereotype. I think it's a really healthy way... You know, to, to be a role model for dressing like that. As and also, to in yeah, because underwear we, essentially, which is what you get. A yeah, lot. we had no yeah. money. So we went to Camden yeah. and Portobello Market and bought the old men's suit trousers and put braces well, on. Lawrence Corner was a favourite. Lawrence Corner, it? yeah. Um, um, and just, you know, and then we made our own clothes and there was, I can't sew so for toffee awful. and it was diabolical. I've got, I made a skirt for cheers then and it's made of heavyweight wool. And it makes me look my hips look six feet wide. It's dreadful. <laughs> we didn't think it through, did we? No, I can't sew,
3: I'm afraid. Yeah, but you would turn up on like top of the pops or the tube. I remember seeing you on the tube, mm-hmm. and you'd have these men's trousers on you could clearly see that you just chucked some braces on and then just whacked a big belt around them. Yeah. So then I'd go up into my dad's wardrobe and you know what I would try to concoct was just a pile of shit by comparison. <laughs> I doubt it.
4: I'm sure it was exactly the same. <laughs> it was like a sort of busman's uniform yeah. that you'd just adapted with a pair of belt. And- <laughs> <laughs> bus conductor <laughs> chic. Yeah, yeah lumberjack shirt. <laughs> our first appearance on an, um, the Brit Awards was wearing that. Yeah, we were wearing grey sort of bus conductor trousers moccasins. and lumberjack shirts and moccasins. Mm-hmm. I mean... Yeah. What were we thinking? It's a very odd it look. It was great. Very odd look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: but how comfy were you? You would have been so comfy. Well, obviously yes. we
4: did coordinate. So we'd all we all wore different shirts and mm. but we had we coordinated our look. Yeah. It just wasn't necessarily a look that you'd expect on a huge award show. <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it
3: looked like the before rather than the after. I definitely downplayed it. The other things that I, I noticed that you said no to, and these are just some of the few that I could find um, <laughs> refusing to uh, pose, wrapped in towels, holding rubber rings, uh, and most specifically when a photographer asked you to get on a fur rug and crawl like cats.
4: We're very mm-hmm. fond of that man, actually. He was very surprised. Was, <laughs> oh, <laughs> <It> was hilarious. <laughs> I think we did wear the um towels and the rubber yeah. ones, and I just couldn't work out yeah. what's what's that saying? What is that look? Why do I <laughs> have the bath with a towel? That's that putting what you think women if or it, girls it, it need it's to a, do. Sort of one of those things that you do once and think <laughs> oh is that? So I think once because <clears throat> you think oh it's the cover of the biggest pop <clears throat> magazine in the country, so we better play ball. And, and then you see it and think, Absolutely oh. not. That is you know and then you never do it again and there was the shoot of
3: you on inflatable bananas and and then ne- never again did any shoot like that ever appear i and i'm figuring I'm that was your first one first first oh. banana armour shoot well we
4: um. did we we did have inflatable bananas styled by boy george wasn't it our, our that was the foundry shy boy clothes. thing in the foundry yeah. clothes but yeah. with so in quite cool clothes but with inflatable bananas. It's yeah. Very I'm really odd. sure what was going on. I don't on know there. why we didn't just say no and deflate them.
3: You gave us so much uh great uh content uh, for smash hits because you were the dream female pop stars and you really were redefining you know for all of those acts that came behind you. Um have you and I know that like I know for example that you're friends with some of the All Saints girls and that they've shared with you I'm sure over many a drink or two, what you meant to them. Have you had that same experience with maybe the likes of the Spice Girls and other female acts that have come since?
4: Um, with Emma, I yeah. think Emma said we were the first um, concert she went to, which was very sweet. And uh, Mel so Beazel was very flattering. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she said she'd seen us on TV and just thought that attitude, that that whole thing that, you know, I want to do that. And I, I think it's so important for young girls, us or anyone else it just need Someone to look up to in all kinds of industries, not just music. To just think, yes, I can do that. Because if it's not there, you can't aspire to it. You can't. You, you can't. Feel like you're not part of it. But when we when we did some promotion last year, because we had an album out last year, I was amazed at how many women yeah. in editors, editors, of, like, big or in newspapers. quite high power jobs said, "Oh, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd be doing this if I hadn't looked up to you." Because it sort of made me think. I can do that. Probably more um, satisfying to hear from other women than than getting an award or anything. To actually know that, yeah, that, you know, you may even find well, somebody. We never get any awards, do we? You did get you. you got a few Brits back in the day,
3: which no, you, you you. No, no?
4: we only no. ever have one nomination. No,
3: that's outrageous. Well, you See,
4: unfortunately, in the eighties, it, it there wasn't a girl band, it was just a band. So it's or a female. It's obvious that a band is going to go to a boy. It's not going to go to women. You you
3: highlighted one um kind of brilliant point of illustration as to the gender imbalance in your heyday. And that was the band aid single. And apart from Jodie Watley, you were the only women in the lineup. Yeah. How wrong is that? It's
4: so wrong. That's it so wrong, a bit wrong, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure how it happened. I mean, and I'm none of sure us had had a, a lead line. It was all all the males. Yeah. That's just, I think that's a throwback from hundreds of years where it's patriarchal, and it's just the way life isn't. You just have to challenge that now. And I just, but even in a small way, we've we've addressed that in the book. But I mean, it's just you have to stand up and be counted, really, because otherwise it just doesn't move on without people like you to show us
3: that. You don't have to say yes, you can say no. Mm. Uh, That you don't have to dress that way, you can dress your way. That you can have an attitude and an opinion and that be okay. Like none of that stuff was permitted when I was growing up until you guys came along. And, you know, there's a brilliant story um, about when you were in America once and, and record executives put over a tannoy system in your hotel that they wanted you to come and join them in the jacuzzi. I mean, what
4: the fuck is that about? And you just went... Get lost and went to the bar. Brilliant. So many women just, in the jacuzzi with all these execs, and it was just—we just, just didn't look the part anyway. We had no. DMs on. And it was <laughs> <we're> in, <laughs> in our boy regalia, and it's just—it was just like Kevin and Perry moment, <laughs> doing that. <laughs> it's those stereotypes, and we wanted not—we didn't consciously want to challenge them. It just felt like it came naturally. Why would we do that just because we're a girl? Why yeah. would we wear that just because you think that's what girls look like? Well, yeah. we'll do what we want to do. Not in a bolshy way, although sometimes we're a bit bolshy, but just in these are my rights, let me have my rights. You, you do you things know, you want go to do, and I'll do it my group way? And say, you know, would you mind putting something a bit more skimpy on? Because we think it'll sound <laughs> No, I'm more it. go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine going to go. Yeah. Yeah. going to go to Oasis. Yeah, but maybe if you just had a really or undid, your, of undid ski- your shirt and put a medallion yeah, yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> that'll sell something. You know, it's it it is ludicrous the way it's you know it's it's always been that way.
3: But I remember the um the Brits performance that you gave because it was such it it was deemed I mean so controversial at the time. Do you remember? But yeah. you came on and you were backed by, I mean, like a a throng. Yeah. of throbbing male backing dancers yeah. in pants and DMs? stockings, stockings although they and were socks, socks they were long, long yeah they,
4: they wouldn't wear stockings cuz uh, they just wouldn't um, <laughs> they were like long socks mid mid and we had them on all fours yeah. and we had but it was something that you would see in any video yeah. any rap or rock video yeah. would be Probably still now. Um, it was a women. role. It, it was, was a role reversal, yeah. but it was it was tongue in cheek. Yeah, it wasn't like eat that and do it again. I mean, we didn't want to exploit them in that way. We just thought, what a, a fun idea for, for an award show, and it was.
3: It's something of, you know, it encapsulates, I suppose, the greatest, um, the, well, the greatest moments and, and the most difficult moments of of your life and, and times as friends and colleagues. Um, and I thought about it in a kind of like a greatest hits package, like a liner notes thing. Back in the day when you would have sleeve notes and you would do your thank yous. If you had to compile a list of thank yous to the, to the people that really were, saying and doing and being and meaning something to you um across the across the time that you've written about who would they be and why
4: Uh, my parents for letting me believe I could do anything I wanted I mean they didn't have a sort of career like mine but they enabled me to to feel like just not just because I'm a woman I'm a woman and I can have a career I can have um kids, I can, I can do anything I want to do and it wasn't that they even knew where I was going, they just let me go and, and do it. So it would definitely be my parents, that sort of moral code. I think we, we had that from you know, similar sort of parents and yeah. n- neither of us grew up thinking that we couldn't do something because we were girls which maybe looking back was quite unusual
3: i think it really was and right. and I, I had a similar upbringing with yeah. parents that you know I, I remember being shocked going into the workplace and experiencing sexism yeah like, well what's that what because what, what, i'm a woman until we left home that was when yeah you yes. i mean yeah.
4: i went to the london college of fashion to do a journalism course and i had a day release at um of music magazine sounds I mean, I went there as a teenager and nobody spoke to me and they just made me make the tea. They didn't encourage me. They didn't help me to do anything. And it was all men. I don't remember a single woman there. Yeah. It was just, you know, the way it was. And it's that's so hard to you know burst out of and kind of go it alone, really. Well, especially when you've made that
3: big strident move, as as you did, as I did, actually to come and study journalism in London, you go right. I'm going to leave this. I'm going to leave the country, the countryside, which is basically anywhere outside of London, uh, in your teenage mind, and I'm going to come to London. And then you encounter this this terrible inequality, having been cocooned by yeah. wonderful parents that go, "If you want to do it, do it," and never go, "Oh yeah, but you're a woman." It was only when I went to a careers advice session at school and they told me not to to want to be a writer but to think about being a typist. That was my first experience.
4: What was it? A typist. And I always wanted to be a writer. It was something secretarial or in a shop was the two things that I was offered, particularly, you know. I mean, anything's fine. It's whatever you want to do. It's just having the opportunity to do something else. But Back in the 70s, 80s, it's like... What opportunities were there for women, really? Nah.
3: really? And, you know, you think the three of us have all predominantly raised children as single parents. Like, so back yeah. in the 80s, you would whisper about women that raised children on their own. Well, you know, she's on her own.
4: My mother was very disappointed that I was an unmarried mother. That that was below her standards. And it was kind of, that's how she was brought up, to think. You know, so I think <clears throat> as much as I was always expected to be top of the class and... You know, achieve something. She was very disappointed that I wasn't a married wasn't married before. I didn't do it the right way. In fact, I never getting married. But she was very disappointed. So I think they she still had those attitudes. And also, seventies. Really? It was you. We didn't have the internet, so everything we learnt was from the TV, and yeah. it was so sexist mm. and racist and homophobic. And yeah. that has to seep into your DNA yeah. really as a kid growing up. So Until uh, it becomes a subconscious, yeah. un- unconscious bias. Yeah. Until so eventually you start to challenge everything. And think, hmm. But but that definitely was was kind of, you know, that's in you when you grow up because that's all you see. Well, that is all you see. Yeah. Like, you know, you yeah. Meet, apart from in your own backyard, that's all you see.
3: So who who were the ones that came and left a, a, a fantastic handprint on
4: your life? Um, I would say Debbie Harry and Patty Smith, um, X-ray Specs, all those female yeah. Susie Sue. All those female punk stars. That's the first time I ever saw women that were sort of closer to my age, although not Debbie Harry because she was obviously in her 30s. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you it. It. <laughs> God, you know, women can make music. They can go and do those things. And I just think they were very important at an age where I was sort of 13, 14, thinking, yeah, that that. And you didn't amazing. feel that there was some sort of Svengali. A bit like you look at the groups in the 60s, you felt like maybe this, the Motown stable or whatever that,
3: well, uh, Barry Gordy was there in the background.
4: More front people than actual artists that you that they weren't sort of taking control of their own careers so much. So I think that was a huge difference between the, the sort of punk acts.
3: Who were the people that took a chance and backed you? And I mean, would, would somebody like Terry
4: Hall qualify? I think yes, I he think would, most definitely um, Paul Cook because yeah. uh, we met in his teenagers, Karen and I, and just I mean, he he kind of showed us. Music really, the music side of it because he had the, the the contact, so we made a demo and he arranged the studio time, Arrange. so he was really important face, to us. But yeah, or belief <clears throat> before we even had it in ourselves, I think he had yeah. some sort of yeah. belief in us, and definitely Terry. De- yeah, yeah, Terry Hall. I mean, Terry, when we first went in the studio, we just thought, Oh god, we because we'd had a demo out, we thought, well, Oh, he doesn't think that we're sort of professional session singers or anything, and he was so inclusive, and also. We were all pretty much shy together, and we kind of mumbled at each other. And well, it, it was and never were shy. No, <laughs> only Terry. Yeah, But he was <clears throat> classic, very, very good company. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we all played everything. It was all very do-it-yourself, which sort of just was the way we were, whether it was clothes or music, you know, just get on with it and do it yourself.
3: That must have meant a lot, actually, because he'd he'd already been successful, had had Paul, and then you're coming along, and you've got kind of an idea, but not really any idea about what you want to be and who you who you think you you've got the potential to be, and these guys come along, and go, yeah, we think you're cool. Come on, pick up that, try mm-hmm. this, sing that, play that, mm-hmm. and it, I mean that must have been quite massive at the
4: time in well, terms
3: of permission really to go. Mm-hmm. Well,
4: yeah, yeah. I mean, that definitely gave us a a foot up because then the next minute we were traveling to Europe and doing TV shows and we were on top of the pop so but I, I would think in a roundabout way we would have found a way through but Terry most definitely escalated that and definitely gave us the confidence to think because he wasn't a big showman and confident <laughs> and you know he was kind of shy and introvert in some ways but just hugely talented and um really encouraged us. So that was, yeah, he was very important to us, I
3: think. And who else, when you think about the people that really were meaningful in helping you on your way?
4: When we got signed to London Records, our first label, mm-hmm. it was very much <clears throat> a sort of novelty. Um, but once it was working, they were hugely encouraging. And they left us and they to left our own to, devices, yeah, really. to get on with it. And we had the most hilarious press <laughs> in Eugene Lancy.
3: Oh, God rest his soul he, who left us yeah. earlier
4: this year. Oh he took we, care of us like a dad. Yeah. He was so He was amazing. Yeah. And we he used to come on trips with us even when he didn't have to. <laughs> and we used to just go and sit in his office with him yeah. all day every day yeah. just to hang out and because we wanted to. And Roger we, and Roger was hugely supportive. Yeah. As well. <laughs> And then
3: we so, may see. So, oh my God! There's another character that you don't see so much of in the business anymore. Oh God, he
4: was hilarious. Don't we yeah, we
3: hilarious. had some really great people.
4: Yeah.
3: I wanted to time hop because your book looks back at so many key moments and milestones. So I just wanted to jump through some what well, I don't know, maybe key stages or ages in your lives. And see just instinctively what comes to mind um when we hit this age and this time in your life. So imagine you're 18. Tell me about your life, your friends, your priorities, what's hanging in your wardrobe and and what makes you happy and what makes you sad.
4: Um I would say secondhand clothes, most mm-hmm. definitely, charity shops and Portobello Road Market, Camden Market, just getting all those clothes together for like 10 p and then making an outfit and going to a club that because you went to clubs every week and most weeknights as well. Yeah. So that that was that was our life then. That's I, mean, I was, was studying but for me it was, it was getting like those freedom,
1: customizing, a freedom customizing of, clothes, it was
4: great, you know, being independent, living on, you know, my own away from the family, just sort of taking off and discovering a whole new world as an 18 year old. Um, so just general excitement and sub accommodation. It, <laughs> yeah. Slash <laughs> squalor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we it was CA, so and, exciting. I mean, we would go out all night clubbing and then this poor little old man would have to answer the door because at yeah. they closed the, the doors at ten o'clock. So it was almost like being in a convent again. It's just like <laughs> it really was. <laughs> Yes. After your BBC fry-up. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
3: And what were your priorities then? Just good times? Fun.
4: I think a lot of yeah. fun. Um, well, obviously I was studying, but yeah. then then suddenly the idea of the group, but it was meeting all... The, it was meeting really creative people that, you know, we had never it met before. It was sort of opening our eyes. It was sort of opening our eyes to things and new experience. It was all new I mean, experiences. And we wanted clubbing, as many as we could get. Our clubbing, we... we first came across Boy George, Jeremy Healy, yeah. Mark Moore from express I mean, all those people were not who they were then, and, and neither were we. And then suddenly, lots of people, even from the Blitz, Spandau Ballet, I mean, yeah. loads of people went on to be other things that in that creative, creative field. It was a creative, cultural yeah. sort of time for youth, I think, mm. in those days. And it, it, I don't know if that sort of thing really exists now because everything yeah, seems to be online clubbing, and clubbing, really, was, um, clubbing was very much dressing up and and really everybody had a character and it just it was the excitement of dressing up which I, I guess people still dress up but it was like really ex- ex- experimental yeah. in, yeah. in that it wasn't just oh put on a bit of lippy it was what are you going to do for your look tonight, and there's mm. some very strange ones of me in the hook. <laughs> you haven't got the. Thing. I love them
3: though, but I remember we had uh, Martin and Shirley Kemp on, and they yes. were talking about exactly this time. And you know, you're right. It would be like a Tuesday night, mm. and you would spend hours getting dressed up, and you wouldn't just do a little bit. It was a look. It was a yeah. theme. Yeah. You know, it was, and then and then you would go out, and there was this this kind of petri dish of amazingly creative people. Yeah who all went on to become significant in terms of the cultural landscape of that time. And sometimes those people are just drawn together,
4: aren't they? The most kind of magnetic. I think, and also because it was so, it wasn't designer clothes and expensive things. It was really just customising, you know, cheap things from, from, as I say, markets and high streets or whatever and, and creating these incredible looks. And then later in the 80s, we gravitated, we had a very sort of artistic, Sat around us, didn't we? Mm. Mowgli and John and and Lee Bowery, Lee Bowery, and we we sort of hung out different kind of environment, but with equally exciting, creative people, and it's just it's quite inspiring being with people like that, people who think a bit differently, and you know you can learn a lot.
3: Okay, let's fast forward to your thirties. Tell me again where you're living, who your friends are, your priorities, what's hanging in your wardrobe.
4: Where are we living? I think. Or in Kentish Town? Yeah, my thirties. We both had children. I Um, moved to Cornwall at some point in my thirties. Yeah. We had the kids. We both Mm -hmm. had kids at Mm -hmm. that point. Yeah, you moved to Cornwall and I went clubbing. That must have
3: been quite a wrench for you two because you'd been so close for so long. And then Karen moves to the Um, other end of the country.
4: Kind of many issues, you know, a lot that's in the book. I think... um, me I I definitely needed some sort of change because it and and that that was the change I made that I chose and I'm still there so it was the right one for me um having said that we do spend still a lot of time obviously together yes (laughs) but yeah I mean we go through our ups and downs the same as everyone else but essentially we've always been best mates and I'm fidgeting now sorry (laughs) am I making you uncomfortable (laughs) Yeah, but, um, Sarah were you sad when she
3: moved because it's it's a big it's a big thing to lose a mate to 100 miles away in another
4: life it's more or less 300 miles the, away well, it
3: hundreds of miles yeah
4: it's hard to answer that in a condensed couple yes. of sentences because it's so much more involved than just someone moving x number of miles away there were reasons for it and we were I think mentally in different places mm. at that point so You'll have to read the book and see. But why, talking about but yes. really strangely talking about it recently, because we we were talking about the nineties or whatever, or the time I moved to Cornwall, and strangely, when we were looking back, we had so many amazing fun times together. Mm. At a point where we sort of felt like we'd gone our separate ways, but we didn't. Mm. We did loads of holidays. We did. But also, ch- even ch- later shows. Well, even together. being close friends. There was so much that we hadn't actually spoken no. about. I didn't realise Karen's depression. I didn't know it was that serious. I mean, that only came out really with the book, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So That's an
3: extraordinary thing to keep from your closest friend.
4: Well, the, I might uh, add selfish. <laughs> <laughs> well, my mum had, um, had <laughs> depression <laughs> her whole life and it was always brushed over the carpet. <laughs> and I think. We did that with quite a lot of things, you know. We're from a, a generation that something's wrong. Well, just get on it, get on with it, you know. Uh, I mean, it. I'm very much that sort of. I yeah. just get on with it. I might think it's a bit sad, right? No, I'll get on with it. Whereas Karen's um, is obviously a bit more, a bit more so. of a blip here and there. Yeah, but I think you know, if you sort of recognise, you know, signs and things, you can deal with it.
3: You know, it's hard though, isn't it? When you because if hard. you were always used to having a good state of mental health when yeah. that, that isn't the case is shocking because you start to, to think, well, well, what have I done wrong? You mm-hmm. don't understand that sometimes you've done nothing.
4: <laughs> sometimes you only realise when it's actually quite bad, you know, because mm-hmm. you just let things go on and on and on. And, um, you know, I think I think a lot of people didn't. They talk a lot more about mental illness, and I just felt like it. a bit of it needed to go in the book because it's been – a feature on and off in my life and it's something that I grew up with with my mum so I've I kind of feel like I can talk about it.
3: Is it something that you talk about with Tom your son because you want him to be mindful of the fact that this is something that's I don't know not that it's hereditary because there's no, nothing to prove oh, that that's the case but.
4: Like my mother in any way shape or form. <laughs> oh but you are. <laughs> no I'm not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we've been very open with our kids, probably in a way, you know, we, we've spoken to our kids and had our kids as, as, I mean, we're obviously parents, but we're friends as well in a way that we didn't have with our own, our, our own parents. Hang on, I did. Well, not <laughs> in the same openness, the same openness, I don't think. You speak yourself. All right. And um, I think that, you know, by discussing, and you can learn from mm. mistakes in your past, and I think there's an honesty. I have a, a honesty with my son, and he's very honest with me, which maybe I didn't have when I was younger with anyone. He kind of comes, yeah. don't admit your weaknesses. But I think, I don't think that changes. I think people still do. I do. It's, as just, well. it's just that encouragement to, to draw things out. But I don't think. But no one used to talk but about issues like that. I mean, nobody, so, nobody did what's difficult is for like young boys because they're always taught to be a certain way and not cry and not show yeah. emotion i think you really have to change how that how that you know how it's they so can okay be. To be yeah emotional. totally i mean i
3: am I'm, I'm raising and uh, my son's 12 and we talk about his feelings all the time yeah. uh, how do you feel about that how, and, and how did that make you feel yeah. i really really to have an emotional connection with himself, yeah, uh, because you know you're right. growing up, nobody talked. To, no. If somebody wasn't well, they'd say, "Oh, um, you know," they just point a finger to their head like they were crazy. Yeah. You know, if if someone had a mental illness, um,
4: yeah.
3: there was an It was kind of a one one sort of finger gesture fits all
4: bit, bit, a yeah. bit nuts. And yeah, they will always oh. chuck away somewhere in some, and I, you know, as I said derogatory in the book, that's name. Very much how I treated my mother's. <laughs> Depression, it's like, God's sake, what's wrong with you? You know, and, and, you and, and being very impatient, it. I didn't understand mm. it. But I mean, people talk about it a lot more now, and, and other stuff, you know, it's like it's sort of one minute, people, no one talks about, I don't know, middle age menopause. And it suddenly it's like, Definitely. all right, enough yeah. already. Yeah. You heard enough about the bloody menopause. <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but, yeah, but isn't it mad that we grew but, up not knowing about it? It's yeah. a bit like you know nobody tells you about placenta when you give birth absolutely. until you're pregnant.
4: Yeah, it's quite shocking. And uh, but people always say if it was a if it was a man going through that, you'd know absolutely, all the rest absolutely everything. They'd be allowed to. They'd retire at forty-five just in yeah,
3: case. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's fast forward to your your mid forties. You're forty-five. How's life changed? Are you still living in the same places? Are your priorities shifted. Has your lifestyle changed?
4: I loved, uh, my actual favourite decade was 35 to 45, I think. I yeah. loved that. Arisa. I loved that time. <laughs> we were partying, we looked great. Yeah. We were doing loads of shows again mm. and going to most amazing places. And yeah. life was good. Life was good. I, we had- I, I loved my 40s. Yeah. We, we had a lot of great times, both working and holidays and, I think we allowed ourselves a bit more time to go yeah. and have fun together and just hang out as opposed to just working yeah. through, those, through those sort of 10 years, 35 to 45, and I absolutely loved it.
3: What have been the, the big takeaways for you from the pandemic in terms of making you rethink how you look at the world and what you want from life?
4: Well, just like we said, you can't imagine that your whole livelihood would be taken away from you. and And... People are in much worse positions than us. But not obviously, being able to actually see friends and family yeah. for me was everything. Yeah. I, mean, but, I, was in I mean, only communicating by a screen. I mean, it was. And us two, we've seen each other constantly. Yeah, we've been <laughs> in bubble because that's <laughs> what the we've banana rama bubble. <laughs>
3: Oh, oh, that's so nice. At least you've got each other. Yes. For the first three months.
4: But I haven't seen my mum for ages and I just hate it. I hate it. Um,
3: And when you finish the book and you you finish in the here and the now, are you you happy with where you are in the here and the now as you kind of, I mean, edge towards the end of your 50s? (laughs) Is is life good? (laughs) Um, Um, Yes.
4: Um, In some ways I feel happier than I've ever been. I I, think think that with age comes that, like, I don't. Well, I didn't care right when I was very young. And then you're very aware of oh, what does this make me look like? That was this and now you're at the age where you just think, No, it doesn't really matter It doesn't does matter. It? It, you, you're, <laughs> no, you're just happy with, you know, your health and different things mean different things to you now, don't they? What yeah. the importance of them. I just
3: want to say thanks. Thanks for being there. Thanks for being in my eye line and for, for leading by example. Because I wouldn't have sat in the editor's chair at Smash Hits had I not had people like you guiding me that way. Okay. And 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 then leaving the door open for other women to come and sit in that chair. And well, and, and that's
4: you can actually sit and share a glass of white wine. Yes.
3: Oh, girls, I really do look forward to seeing you in real life. Get the, get back on the road as soon as you can, as, as soon as COVID permits. And thank you so much for your time. Oh, for thank us. you. That's it for this week's White Wine Question Time. Pinch me, it's over. But we'll be back next week. As always, the show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Richard Hatherall for Yahoo UK and Callum Goddard-Mocklow is on editing duties. Music is provided by Andy Bell. His back catalogue with Oasis, Ride and his solo projects. Are available on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, I'll be back next week. I can't believe that just happened. Happy days. Pinch me. And don't forget always drink responsibly.
0: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues